But let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We're in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us a, give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Teach us this morning from your word that we may see you, that we may know you, and that we may fear you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter of visted hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, Majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest me. 
That's the first stanza of a poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven from 1890. It's a poem about God, the hound of heaven, who chases down the poet from fleeing from God. But the chase is not like a predator who is hunting his prey. God is not chasing down the poet to destroy him. He's chasing him down that he might save him to show the poet the joy that is found in the love of God. Last week in the first three verses of Jonah, we saw Jonah, the prophet, hear the call from the Lord, but instead of obeying, he turned and he ran. He ran from God's call, he ran from God's people, and he ran from God himself. And in the passage this week, we get to learn about how God responds to Jonah's running. The big thing to take away from our text today is that the sovereign God chases down his people so that we may fear him. The sovereign God chases down his people so that we may fear him. We've all run from God. We've all run from him at different times and in different ways. We've run from God's call in our various positions in life. We've run away from God's people. We've tried to hide from people, pulling away from relationships, not wanting to be challenged, not wanting to be known, not wanting people to call us out in our sin. But ultimately, we've run from God himself. We like to sing, come thou fount. We always highlight the line that we are truly prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. We're all like sheep who have gone astray. And we're always in need of a shepherd to chase us down, to rescue us from our running. So as much as the prospect of God chasing us down is a frightening prospect, and as we're going to see here in Jonah 1, it is a frightening prospect in some senses when the Lord chases us down. What we need to see is that it's an act of God's steadfast love. It's an act of God's grace to us to find lost sheep, to chase us down, call us back to himself. So let's look at our passage today. We're going to look at how the sovereign God chases down his people that we may fear him. So as we saw last week, Jonah runs. But does the, does the Lord let Jonah run? Does the Lord let him run? Yes, for a time, but only for a short time. Jonah, he ran, he made it to Joppa. He ran, he made it to a ship. He got down on the ship and he made it out onto the sea. But in the grand scope of a God who is everywhere present, a God who is omnipresent, Jonah didn't actually really make it very far. I think we've all seen the scene in movies where the main character is trying to escape some enemy. They're frantically running away in terror. This tension is building in the chase. Will they escape? And when they finally get to the point where you think they've finally gotten away, finally found safety and peace, the enemy pops up from out of nowhere, or the car runs out of gas, or whatever it is, you thought they had reached safety, but no, something else happens. Jonah has been running, but no matter how long the Lord let him run, he was never actually going to get away from God. God may let his people run for a time, but he's not going to let them run forever. He's not going to let us run forever if we are truly his. 
God's pursuit of you, no matter how uncomfortable it is in the time, is actually a sign that you are his and he will not let you go. So how does the Lord chase down Jonah in this passage? First, he chases down Jonah by sending a great storm. And this was no normal storm. This was a huge storm. Verse one, it calls it, uh, verse four, calls it a great wind and a mighty tempest. And the text even says that the ship threatened to break up. And that phrase is personification. If you're going to translate it literally in the Hebrew, it'd be that the, the ship contemplated breaking up. The storm was so big that it's almost as if the ship was willing to give up. It was thinking, I've had enough. One commentator said the ship was a nervous wreck. And I love puns, so I love that. But I think the phrase emphasizes strongly how dangerous this storm was. It wasn't just an inconvenience for the sailors. It wasn't just going to delay their trip. Their lives were in danger, and they knew it. The, The boat was literally nearly ready to break up into pieces and leave them stranded in the Mediterranean Sea in the middle of a huge storm. So I want us to not read this text and just think, oh, cool, a big storm. I wonder how they're going to respond so we can learn some cool point. I think we need to really understand the desperate emotional state that these sailors would have been in in this storm. We need to imagine the storm and the wind, the waves crashing over the side of the the boat, the, the salt water pouring in from all sides, the desperation and the fear of these sailors. There's a song by Gordon Lightfoot called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I know many of you know this song. It's probably the most repetitive, melodically repetitive, six and a half minute song that has ever been written. But all the same, I love The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's a song about a freighter that sank on Lake Superior on November 10th of 1975. And I remember hearing the song as a kid Whenever my family would travel to different places, we'd go on a road trip every summer. My mom would uh, get together different resources of things that were related to the places we would see. So when we went up and we were going through Duluth up to Canada one time, my mom got a little tape and put it in the car because we had tapes. And we played the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald as we drove along Lake Superior to fit the mood. And I remember as a kid that these, these words from this song really sunk in. It was, a, it was kind of a terrifying song to hear as you're kind of imagining being in the place of these sailors stuck out, on this, out, stuck out on this massive lake in this storm. And there's a couple verses in the middle of the song that have always hit me the hardest. The song goes, I'm not going to sing it for you. The wind in the wires made a tattletale sound when the wave broke over the railing. And every man knew, as the captain did too, t'was the witch of November come stealing. The dawn came late and the breakfast had to wait when the gales of November came slashing. When afternoon came, it was freezing rain in the face of a hurricane west wind. When supper time came, the old cook came on deck saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m., a main hatchway caved in He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. The captain wired in. He had water coming in and the good ship and crew was in peril. And later that night when his lights went out of sight came the wreck 
of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I think those verses really capture the scene of a huge storm rolling up slowly and bearing down on the ship and the sailors and the realization by the sailors as time goes on that they're probably not going to make it out of this storm alive. And as we work through this passage, we need to keep in mind that context. This whole entire passage is probably taking place in the midst of this storm. There's all this dialogue between Jonah and the sailors, but it's probably so loud in the wind and the thunder and the waves. They're probably yelling these things to each other across the ship, trying to get each other's attention and communicate in the middle of the storm. They're not just floating around in this nice little boat. It's a huge storm, and we need to keep that in mind as we read through this. And as the passage goes on, the storm only grows stronger and stronger. Verse 11 and 13 both tell us the storm grew more and more tempestuous as this passage goes on. But look with me to verse 5. It says that the mariners were afraid. Great understatement. They were in terror. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. For seasoned sailors like these guys to be afraid, this ship, uh, this storm had to be huge. And they were going right to their last resorts. They were calling out to their gods. They had nowhere else to go. They, they had thrown their cargo into the sea, trying everything, throwing away probably the goods that they were carrying, all of the money that they were going to make from this, this trip. They're throwing into the sea. They're saying, we're going to die. We need to find any way out of this. And they're calling out to their gods. These are pagan sailors. It mentions that they were each calling out to their different gods, hoping that they would maybe find the right God, find the one that was causing this storm to come upon them. Pagans in this time had kind of a best God for the job mindset. They were okay with there being many gods. They were okay with your God being a God and my God being a God. And we were just going to find the God that would work in any given scenario. And so that's what they're doing. They're saying, you call it to your God, I'll call it to mine. We're going to find out what's working, find the best God, the God that can help us in the midst of this scenario. But in the middle of this frantic work by the sailors, what is Jonah doing during all this? Well, for one, he's certainly not helping them. He goes down the second half of verse five. He goes down into the ship and he falls asleep. And down here is, again, the same word for down that we saw in verses one through three. Emphasizing that as, as Jonah is running away from the Lord, he's not just going away from the Lord, he's going down to run away from God, to distance yourself from God, is always to draw near to death, to draw near to the grave, to draw near to hell. And he continues his downward spiral, his downward trip as he goes down into the ship. And Jonah's descent is only going to continue again at the end of this passage, as we will see. But the contrast, I think, couldn't be any clearer between these sailors and Jonah. And this contrast is only going to grow through this passage. When the captain finds Jonah, he calls out to him. Again, he's probably yelling over the wind and the thunder. He's saying, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Again, we got to use your God too. Maybe this will work. But this is a really interesting, sharp rebuke coming from this pagan sailor. This pagan sailor is calling out to the prophet of the Lord and telling him to pray. It's going the opposite way that you think it should. The prophet of the Lord shouldn't need someone else to remind him to pray, let alone a pagan sailor. 
But here, the pagan sailor, call out, call out to your God. But then second, the captain's language here is also really significant because it mirrors God's command to Jonah just a few verses earlier. What does the captain say? He says, arise, call out. What had the Lord said to Jonah, the call that Jonah ran from? Arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So I want you to imagine for a second that you are Jonah here, that you're running from God's call to arise and to call out to Nineveh. And you're woken up in the middle of this raging storm with the captain of the ship shaking you and yelling in your face, arise, call out, arise, call out. Jonah's running from God, but God is chasing him down. God is even using this pagan sailor to call him back to the commission that God had already given to Jonah. Even the pagan ship captain is being used by God for his purposes here. But still, Jonah remains silent. So the sailors move on to their next plan. Their assumption is that someone on the ship has displeased one of the gods and they need to find out who so they can fix the problem. So what, what they do is they, they go about casting lots. And we don't know exactly how lots worked, but they would do something like throwing small stones. And depending on how the stones would land, they would discern from the gods the answer they were seeking. So as you would guess, they take the lots and they throw them and the lots fall on Jonah. Jonah just can't get away. He can't get out of it. God is providentially working to not let Jonah get away, even through the lots here. And the sailors, they find out, okay, this is Jonah. Jonah's the one that's going to be able to tell us what's going on. So they pester him with question. And I, I imagine Jonah standing here on the ship and all the sailors around him yelling these questions from all of these different directions at him. Tell us on a, whose account this evil has come from. Where are you from? What's your occupation? What country are you from? What people are you from? Overwhelmed, people just asking him, peppering him with questions. And Jonah has been a silent prophet up to this point. I think it's interesting. Jonah is the only character so far in Jonah, in the book of Jonah, that has not said a single word. God has spoken. His pagan sailors have spoken, all calling out to Jonah. And Jonah, the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, who's supposed to speak for God, is utterly silent, but God doesn't let him stay silent. God, through these pagan sailors asking these questions, forces Jonah to admit what is happening. He's found out, he's forced to own up to who he is and to what he's done. And though Jonah certainly said way more than just this one sentence in verse nine, we can tell that he said more because of what the sailors know later, because Jonah had told them that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I think the author intentionally puts this one sentence from Jonah right in the center of the passage. Jonah declares, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The reason that it's important that this declaration of Jonah lies right in the center of the passage is that this passage is structured as a chiasm. I don't know if you're familiar with the term chiasm. It means that the passage has a concentric structure. So the second half of the passage parallels the first half of the passage, but in reverse order. So if the structure is A, B, C, D, the second half of the passage goes D, C, B, A. 
And in a chiasm, what's important is what lies at the center of the chiasm, and then also the things that change as the parallel flows back out the second half. So it's significant that this, this declaration of Jonah is the very center of this passage. And Jonah confesses, he's a Hebrew, he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the effect that this has on the sailors is instant and amazing. In verse 10, the sailors says they were exceedingly afraid. And they said to Jonah, what is this you have done? Essentially, what have you done to us? For they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So at the beginning of the passage, the sailors were afraid of the storm. But when they find out who it is that is sending the storm, that it's the Lord, they're exceedingly afraid. Literally in the Hebrew, it's they feared a great fear. They feared a great fear. Finding out that the Lord sent the storm actually increased their fear. They went from being afraid to fearing a great fear. I think part of the reason for this is the phrase that Jonah uses that the Lord created or made the sea and the dry land. This type of phrase is called a mirrorism. You're learning a lot of cool uh, Hebrew things this morning. You can impress your friends later. This is called a mirrorism. And the way a mirrorism would work in Hebrew is that you would use two opposite things to describe the whole. So in the Psalms, when David writes that the Lord knows his his standing up and his lying down. It's not just saying the Lord knows those two things. David is declaring that the Lord knows everything about him. So when Jonah declares that the Lord made the sea and the dry land, he's saying that the Lord is the maker of everything. And in those days, to be the God who made something also meant that you were the God that had authority over the thing that you had created. So this is really a statement about God's sovereignty. God's lordship over everything, everything that he created, the sea that they're in, the ship, the people, the sky, the land, all of it is God's. And if I found out that God was the one sending the storm upon me, and it was the God who made and owned and ruled everything, I would be afraid too. And I hope that you would be afraid too, just like these sailors. So they question Jonah again in verse 11. What should we do to you? Notice in this verse that they don't just say, what should we do? They say, what should we do to you? Even these pagan sailors understood that God's justice in this scenario had to be appeased or satisfied. Something had to happen to Jonah to get this to stop. And Jonah tells them exactly what to do in verse 12. He says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I think that this phrase, this sentence here by Jonah is probably the best thing that Jonah has done so far in this book. He confesses that it's his fault. This this whole storm, everything, I'm the reason that this is happening to you. But as we're going to see, even just a little bit, the statement is not without its flaws uh, and without its deep issues. But the sailors, notice how they respond to this again. The sailors don't want to throw Jonah overboard. Jonah earlier was completely passive, showed zero care for the lives of the sailors, but they don't want him to die. They save him. Again, the contrast between the sailors, these pagans, and the prophet of the Lord is incredible. And so he's, they're, they're just completely putting him to shame, this entire passage. 
So what they do is they try to get him back to land, which actually would have been more dangerous for them. Uh, To get closer to the land would have actually threatened the ship even more than staying out at sea. They try to get him back to land, and when that fails, they cry out to the Lord not to fault them for what they have to do. And then finally, in verse 15, they pick up Jonah, they take Jonah, and they hurl him out into the sea. And Jonah has been going down and down, and he's running from God. And here his descent reaches its deepest point. He is thrown into the sea, and he sinks down into the sea. Throughout this passage, Jonah is running and running from God. But God is chasing him down point for point, using lots, using pagan sailors, using a storm, everything to draw Jonah back. But it's not going to be until next week that we see how Jonah responds. So stick around until next week on Livingstone Sermons to find out what happens next. I'm not trying to manipulate you to coming next week, am I? That's not good. But one thing that's really huge that I think we need to not miss in this passage is that as God has been chasing Jonah down point for point, he has not only been chasing Jonah down, he's been chasing other people as well. I want you to look at the last three verses and how they mirror the first two verses. So you're going to have to be keeping your eye and kind of going back and forth between the last three verses and the first two verses. In the beginning of the passage, the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea. So the sailors hurl, same Hebrew word, their cargo overboard. In the last three verses, the sailors hurl, again, the same word, Jonah overboard, and the storm ceases. So you see the parallelism. The storm starts, the Lord is hurling things, they hurl cargo. Then they hurl Jonah, and this great storm ceases. In the beginning, the sailors called out to their gods. At the end, the sailors call out to the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. They call out to the God of the Israelites, the Hebrew God, the true God. In the beginning of the passage, the sailors feared. They feared probably for their lives. At the end of the sailors, the, the, at the end of the passage, the sailors feared the Lord exceedingly. Again, this is, they feared a great fear of the Lord. And even more, they worshiped the Lord. They offered sacrifices. They made vows. And now this is debated by some scholars, but I fully believe that the parallels here are meant to show the conversion of these sailors. They went from calling out to pagan gods to calling out to the true Lord, fearing him, worshiping him, sacrificing to him, offering vows to him. God has been chasing down Jonah, but amazingly, at the exact same time and through the exact same scenarios, he's been chasing down all of these pagan sailors and drawing them to himself. I think this beautifully illustrates for us the sovereignty of God in salvation. If you were at our summer conversation last night, we looked at the book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and I mentioned last night that they were going to Anybody who was there was going to get a little bonus onto what we talked about last night, this morning. If you haven't read Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God and you weren't at the summer conversation, I still recommend that you read that book. But I want us to look at the last phrase here that the sailors say in verse 14. The last thing that they say is, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. 
This is an amazing phrase on the lips of these pagan sailors or on the lips of these former pagan sailors. They're essentially confessing the absolute sovereignty of God. This phrase, the Lord does as he pleases, is used in just a few other places in the Old Testament. And every single time it's used, it's a reference to the absolute sovereignty of God. Perhaps the most famous of these is in Psalm 115, verses 1 through 3, which say, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But notice how interesting it is that in this passage in Jonah, it's not the nations saying, where is their God? And the Israelites responding, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The Israelite is sinking in the sea. And it's these former pagans from Gentile nations saying, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It is them that who are confessing the sovereignty of God. And even these sailors can see and confess that God throughout this passage has worked his perfect will in his perfect way in all that has happened. In God's matchless wisdom, he used the storm that he used to stop Jonah to also chase down and draw to himself these sailors. And this was all despite the pitiful efforts of Jonah. Jonah was absolutely pitiful in this passage. And what an encouragement to us. And of course, this isn't an excuse for us to say, well, we can just not care about how well we do evangelism, not take any effort to to try to communicate the gospel well or to fulfill our callings because, you know, God is still going to do his work. We shouldn't want to be like Jonah. But what an encouragement that the sovereign God can call people to himself, even when the people that are meant to proclaim the truth of the gospel are completely wrong, when, when they are forced into proclaiming it instead of joyfully proclaiming it, when they don't know how to say it. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about that. When you go and proclaim the gospel, oh, did I say a wrong word? I didn't know how to do it right. I messed it all up. I, I failed in so many ways. But if God can use Jonah here, Surely he can use us. And I think the greatest evidence, though, of conversion in these sailors is not just their confession of the sovereignty of God, but the statement in verse 16 that these men feared the Lord exceedingly. There's a progression through this passage. There's a growth in these sailors. They fear, and then they fear a great fear, and then they fear a great fear of the Lord. And I think in this we're meant to learn something about the fear of God. Fearing God is not identical to merely being afraid of God. The sailors at the beginning were afraid of the storm, and then they were afraid of the God who sent the storm. But there's something different at the end when it says they fear the Lord. Their fear manifested itself in sacrifice, in vows. It manifested itself in worship, even after the danger of the storm, after the danger of God's judgment was already gone. God had displayed his justice and his glory to these sailors, and their response was to come trembling before him in awe-inspired worship. I think it's important for us to recognize that for the Christian, fearing God is not something that repels us from God, not something that causes us to run from God. 
It's something that draws us toward him. Something that draws us toward his majesty and his power and his glory and his love. If you're struggling with wrapping your mind around the idea of the fear of God, I highly recommend uh, this book to you, Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord by Michael Reeves. It's a fantastic treatment of the fear of God throughout scripture. But I just wanted to read briefly something that he wrote in here that I think is really helpful for us. It was helpful for me when I read it. Reeves writes, the fear of the Lord suggests a physical experience, being overwhelmed, of being weak, need, and trembling, of being staggeringly discomposed. Now, I can tremble in quite different ways. I can shake in terror as a soldier might under heavy fire, but I can also quake in overwhelmed adoration as when the bridegroom first sees his bride. For the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. Love, he describes the fear of the Lord as trembling, being overwhelmed by God, and not just his power, but also his goodness. Fearing the Lord is something that draws us to worship God and to love him and to obey him. And Jonah is exactly the opposite of these sailors and their fear of the Lord. In the dead center of the passage, Jonah confessed to fear the Lord. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. But sadly, so far in the book of Jonah, Jonah has he's shown absolutely no evidence that he actually fears the Lord. He confesses to fear him while he runs from him. Fear of the Lord draws us to worship God and to obey God. But Jonah has run. His confession didn't match reality in his life. And so we need to ask ourselves this question as we've been looking through this passage and seeing the contrast between these sailors and Jonah. Are we more like the sailors or are we more like Jonah? Does our confession of knowing God, of fearing him, does it match our actions in our lives? Does it match reality? Do we say we, we fear him while we run from him? Or do we fear him in awe-inspired worship and praise? Jonah is contrasted sharply with the sailors in this passage. And the whole book of Jonah is full of big comparisons and contrasts. Jonah is compared in contrast with these sailors, with the Ninevites, and he's compared and contrasted with God himself. But reading through this passage, there seems to be another comparison that we could make. Do we know of another prophet of God sleeping on a boat during a storm? Do we know of another man who was sacrificed to save the lives of others? Yes, we do. If as we've been going through this passage at points, your your mind has thought, that sounded a bit like Jesus. You weren't wrong. In Mark 4, when Jesus is accounted as sleeping in the boat and calming the storm, many scholars, and I agree, think that it is written to intentionally mirror Jonah, but to highlight that Jesus is not just a prophet of God, 
but that Jesus is the God himself, the Lord of heavens and earth, that Jesus is the one who rules over the sea and the dry land. And then Jesus himself in Matthew 12, verse 40, he compares his own death and resurrection to Jonah being thrown into the sea, being swallowed by the fish, and then being vomited up three days later. So Jonah really is foreshadowing Jesus in this passage. But you might say, but I thought Jonah was doing everything wrong in this passage. And I would say, he is. What's amazing about Jonah foreshadowing Jesus is not the thing, not just the things that are similar, but most amazingly, the things that are dissimilar. How different Jonah is than Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Jonah is the anti-hero. Jonah slept in the boat because he had no regard for the lives of the others in the boat. Jesus slept in the boat because he was himself the Lord of the sea, the Lord of the wind and the waves, who could calm them to save his friends. Jonah ran from the will of of God. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Jonah was willing to die rather than repent. Some see Jonah as being a good figure here because he was willing to give up his life for the other sailors. But I actually don't think Jonah's proposed solution was the right one. The right solution for Jonah wasn't to die, but to repent. God had called him to go to Nineveh. The right answer for Jonah would have been to say, I confess my sins, take me back to land. I'm going to obey the Lord and go go to Nineveh. Do what the Lord has called me to do. But instead he says, I would rather die than do what the Lord has called me to do. So get it out of the way because it'll make it better for you. Jonah wasn't obeying God by being thrown into the sea. But in contrast to that, Jesus was willing to die to bring salvation to God's people from every nation. The great comparison in the midst of all of these uh, contrasts is that it was the sacrifice of one that brought salvation for the many. Like Jonah, Jesus was sacrificed so that the wind and the waves of God's judgment might not fall on us. And that's the point. That's the connection. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then know that the only way out of the storm, the only way out of the wind and the waves of God's judgment that we all deserve for our sin, that we all deserve for running away from God, is through the death of Jesus and through trust in him. Only his death can calm the sea. And if you're a Christian this morning, then God, the hound of heaven, has chased you down so that you would be his, so that you would know him and fear him and live for him. And he does this in each of our lives in very unique ways, doesn't he? But the common thread in how God chases us down is the seeking and the saving work of Jesus the very Lord of the wind and the waves, the God of heaven, the maker of the sea and the dry land, chased us down to the point of taking on human flesh, dwelling among us, living for us, dying for us, and rising for us. Jesus is the great prophet who came to seek and to save the lost. And our sovereign God has chased us down so that we may fear him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us in our sin. 
You do not leave us to our running. If we, are, if we are yours, if we are your children, you discipline us. You chase us down. You do not let us live comfortably in our sin. You bring others to call us out, situations to call us out. And God, you chase us down. We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, that he would come to find his lost sheep, to live for us and die, that we might have life, that the wind and the waves of your judgment might not break up our ship and bring us to death, but instead the storm would grow calm, that we would know you, serve you, love you, fear you, and worship you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. Let me read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. Here Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This morning as we come to the table, you don't have to be a member of Livingstone Church. You don't have to be a member of a PCA church. I'd like to say that this table does not belong to us, to me, to this church, to our denomination. This table belongs to our Lord. So all baptized Christians who profess faith in Christ, who are repentant over their sins, and who are in good standing with the gospel preaching church are invited to come to this table and to be fed. We come together to this table to remember our Lord Jesus, to remember what he has done for us, to remember his sacrifice that has calmed the wind and the waves of God's judgment for us. We also come to this table to be spiritually fed. But we need to recognize that there's also a warning in the passage that I just read. There's a warning of judgment for those who don't eat this meal in a worthy manner. So I'd ask that before you come forward this morning, that you take a moment to examine yourself, to see if you really do have faith in Jesus Christ. If you really are repentant over your sin, if you are, if you are showing love, repentance, new obedience in your life, to make sure that it's not just a confession of your mouth, like Jonah, that you are a Christian and you fear the Lord, that those things are evidenced in your life. And if these do not mark you, then we would ask that you remain in your seats during this time. But we also need to recognize that it's true that even for genuine believers, we are often much weaker than we would like to be. Our faith and our repentance are always weak and imperfect. And in the same way that ordinary meals strengthen us and nourish us, 
This meal is given for us in our weakness to come and to be fed, to be nourished, to have our faith and repentance grow. So if you're a believer, even if you know you are weak, if you truly trust in Jesus Christ and have repented over your sins, then this table is for you and for your good. So come and be fed. But those who are helping serve, uh, please come forward as I pray for us and for this meal. Most gracious Father, our God who calls us to the holy table of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to show his death and for us to receive the gift of life, we ask that you would enable us to come with earnest faith, to come with uh, kindled and true devotion to you. Help us to remember our Savior's sacrifice with adoration and with praise. Open our eyes to behold the vision of his love and pour into our souls the fullness of his grace. We ask that submitting ourselves to you, we would be able to live as people who are not our own, but as people that have been bought with a price and belong to you. And as you call us this time and as you call us to prepare ourselves for coming to this table, we ask that you would give us the grace to forgive one another, to truly discern the place of our own heart, And we ask that you would accept us as we come forward, as we dedicate ourselves to you and grant that as we feed on Christ by faith, that we would be strengthened by your Holy Spirit, that we would be enabled to live in your fellowship now and for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.